Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. This is Tess Wilkinson-Ryan here with Dave Hoffman at the University of Pennsylvania. Today we're talking about Parker versus 20th Century Fox. How far does Parker's promise go? Does she have to star in Big Country, a Big Man? Let's get started. I love this case. I think it's really interesting. It's a, I think it's fair to say, a controversial part of the casebook. Yeah. Um, um, there is a really interesting law review article uh, called, um, remember, it's by Mary Jo Frug, yeah. um, and the article basically criticizes contracts casebooks for when and under what circumstances um, women uh, counterparties appear in the cases. And the, the article makes sort of a point about this particular case. And actually, one of the casebooks it criticizes is the casebook that you know, you're reading our, our casebook. So it criticizes that casebook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this would be before your time and maybe even before. It would be before my time. Okay. It would be before my time. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so, I mean, not, not because the case, um, not because of sort of commentary around the case, but sort of because the case um, really, I think when you read it the first time um, it's, the, the dissent is so powerful that it can be hard to figure out. Um, it's hard to sort of unearth the good arguments for Shirley MacLaine. And so part of our, hopefully our conversation today will be able to try to find the better arguments uh, for her than maybe are apparent in the majority opinion and, and maybe try to understand a little bit about why the case comes out the way it does. All right, great. I, I have now come so far to the other side that I have a hard time seeing the good arguments against her position. Um, Perfect. To me, they rack up on her side um, in such a way that it's wild that this is even, um, that this is even uh, controversial. All right, but so, Shirley McLean. You wanna do the facts first and then yeah. I'll, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll do a super quick bad version of the facts. Yep, great. Shirley McLean Parker is hired by Fox, 20th Century Fox, to star in Bloomer Girl. Bloomer Girl, if I understand correctly, is the uh, story of a labor organizer of a, uh, in a factory, and it would, so it would star Shirley MacLaine Parker in a um, key role in which she has sort of professional agency and is not, as opposed to sort of being, for example, a romantic partner of the lead. Yes? Yes. Um, and the movie is pulled and the studio says, um, we are going to ask you to um, mitigate losses here. We are breaching our contract, but you as a person with a duty to mitigate are being offered a different film. Big country, big man. And by the title, as you can guess, this is a feminist exploration of, no, this is not. This is a Western movie starring, in which she would be the romantic partner of, um, of the star. The question is what it means to have a duty to mitigate, or if, you, if that's even the right language, we probably would want to argue that it's not, uh, in this context. And the case is a little bit interesting for a contracts case book, in part because it's an employment case. Um, and so the rules are somewhat 
specific to the employment context, but maybe the, but the principles probably probably not. I agree with all that. I think the only thing I would add um, in a method acting kind of way would be that Shirley uh, McLean Parker, you know, uh, is in the, the late 1960s, um, as I said earlier, sort of at the height of her stardom, um, or the sort of, she's a rising um, actress. There's lots of evidence, um, both in the case and some of the commentary, that she had brought this project to Fox, that is Bloomer Girl. She brought Bloomer Girl to Fox rather than Fox bringing it to her. And it's sort of like a passion project, which, you know, when you're an A-list actor, you get to choose what are going to be, how you spend your time. In the old studio system, you know, you were very much captive to what the studio wanted. As the studio system starts to break down in the 60s, stars had more agency. And this is the part that she wanted. She thought, I'd spent this time being kind of like the, you know, the, 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 the female um, a company of the male lead, but now I'm going to have a part that both fits my ideological leanings. She was a, you know, well-known um, uh, feminist. Uh, and it's a part that doesn't require me to be reflected through, you know, a male gaze. And so she's brings it to them. It also has singing, which is something that she wants to sort of demonstrate that she's capable of. And she has in the original contract, um, unusual degrees of creative control. Uh, so she gets to pick not just, uh, she doesn't just have director approval, which is sometimes um, in, in these contracts, but she also has sort of choreographer approval, yeah. which is a big deal. And she has final script approval, which is a really uh, big thing. So this is, this is going to be her creative uh, baby. And when they come to her with Big Country, Big Man, not only is the subject matter changed um, from a feminist musical about uh, labor organizing to a Western about Big man. A big man. Uh, not only is the subject matter changed, but she is stripped of the, the power it, that she had in the original contract to make sure that the, the script and the director and the choreographer, well, the choreographer, there's no, there's no more dancing and singing, so that's easy. Um, but she's stripped of all of the sort of the particular authority that she had. So, um, you know, it's quite easy to see when you first come to those facts why this seems like a, a rotten deal. Um, yeah. You know, I was just trying to think, I wonder if we could, like, the, the, this movie was obviously made long before people talked about the Bechdel test. You know, the Bechdel test yeah. is the test about whether or not uh, women, two women are ever on screen without a man discussing something other than men, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one imagines that Bloomer Girl, which is about a, which about women in a professional capacity, essentially, right? Would, would have that, would have, would meet that test. But so, I wonder if it would be helpful to like analogize the two options she had to something that, that is contemporary. Right. So I guess I was just thinking like, is it the difference between, you know, being Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich versus being Julia Roberts in oceans eight, oceans 11, sorry, oceans 11. Or in pretty woman. Oh geez. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even yeah. that at least pretty woman's called pretty woman. Yeah, it's literally. I mean, in some ways, this this, well, this case reads like a parody, right? Yeah, like literally. <laughs> so, but the but the hard part of the case, I take it, is you yeah. read the you know the majority opinion and and you say to yourself, yeah, great. I mean, this is sort of it's it's outrageous. Why should she have to take this obviously inferior part? Yeah. And the test is different or inferior. And you and you read the majority, you say it's inferior. Yeah. Well, you know, what's the point of having a jury? 
decide that question, it seems, I mean, this is a procedural question, you know, yeah. the, does she win on summary judgment? And she does according to the majority. You don't even have to have a jury decide whether it's inferior because it seems like a waste of time. And then, and then the dissent says two things, you know, the dissent says one, you know, actually most of the versions of the test didn't use the word different or inferior. You know, they, that was sort of like one of the possibilities. Really, it's a, it's a juror question, you know, a factual question. You know, is this the kind of thing that, you know, a person reasonably should have taken? And that's, Ordinarily, the kind of question should go to a jury of her peers, whatever that would mean. Um, and why did they why did they skew the test? So that's sort of a you know if you're the, a law student who's really interested in sort of how common law develops, you read that dissent and you say, yeah, like it does feel that they cherry pick the exact test that they wanted in order to get the outcome they desired. And and if you're a law student who's worried about procedural stability who might think to yourself that ordinarily judges shouldn't be overturning juries or shouldn't be seizing power from juries. You might say to yourself, yeah, this is a jury question. A juror, uh, a set of ordinary citizens should be making the choice as to whether she gets to essentially do nothing and keep all of the money that she was owed. And so the dissent presses your intuitions in two ways. I mean, even for students who are gonna be very sympathetic to the power arguments that are obvious in the case, the dissent says, you know what, talk about power. This is about judges versus juries. Yeah. This is about who gets to decide. And shouldn't it be, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the ultimate democratic place, the, the smallest unit of democratic participation in our system, the most legitimate decision makers are people, are ordinary lay people. So what the article, Mary Jo Frug's article says is, God, that dissent really makes it hard for for readers to figure out what their intuitions should be. And you end up feeling angry at Shirley MacLean. You know, you end up saying to yourself, yeah, come on. Shouldn't you have to go in and go to a jury and say, you know, I, this, this movie, which by the way, paid me the same amount for acting, in wasn't, good, wasn't good enough for me because I was fastidious about what words I was saying on the screen. Right, while the rest of you have to go to work and do whatever your boss says all day. I wanted the ability at the very far margins. Yeah. Yes. I mean, right. So one of the interesting things about this case for me is that I just don't have strong intuitions about the judge juror distinction. And yeah. So, which, which is sort of challenging, right? Because it's, because I don't know, I can, I can think about what, what sort of my like principle might be that would apply to this case, but I don't know how far it goes, right? Like, is, do you read this court as saying something pretty sweeping about whether, about what questions should go to a jury? So this court, do you think, um, make a similar choice in a less glaring case? So, you know, my... I mean, some of you are in civil procedure, not all of you. Uh, some of you, that is the listeners of this podcast who are presumably mostly law students. Um, and, you know, one thing that civil procedure, I think, talks about is how juries have sort of been losing ground over the last, you know, maybe 150 years. And that's happened because judges have gotten more professionalized. Lawyers have gotten more professionalized. The professions move farther, it's become more elite even than it used to be. More education, more money, more status. And, you know, start, and, and especially sort of in the 70s and 80s, this trend accelerated. And lots of judges started saying, you know, we just 
we just we just don't have to have jury trials for all kinds of issues because they're a waste of, they're just they're wasteful and juries are kind of um, whimsical and flighty is the word you keep on seeing in the cases some flighty jury I'm mean, interesting gendered um, some sort of some jury is going to reach some result that we just think is crazy and we're just not going to we don't have to stand for it the legal system's a professional um, rational thing. Now, would the, is this court thinking about that so clearly? No, but obviously they did say to themselves, we just don't trust that a jury could, could get to the right result here. I mean, if you really think that this is true, which I, I, think, I think it's true that she's getting a terrible offer. Yes, agree. But why couldn't a jury say that? I mean, right. So, so one thing you might think is that the is that the court thinks the jury is not going to be is that the jury is less likely to think through the incentive effects of its of its decision, right? That they're going to decide on the merits of the case in front of them. Which, of course, I think you see a lot of you right. see a lot of cases in contract law where the court is worried about that thing. The, the jury is going to see this, and they're going to have relatively strong emotions. Emo- yeah, they're going to be like, "No, wait, you can't breach your contract, right?" Or in this case, you're already so lucky. Why right. should we stand up for you? I was just, I, um, my summer uh, associate experience was in Portland, Maine in 2004. And one of the things that um, the attorneys at the firm I worked at said about Maine juries, which apparently is empirically the case, is that they're very stingy. <laughs> and, you, and it makes total sense to me. It's a, it's, it's a view of like, you're fine. Like, come on, stop complaining. Right, you do not. They are they are not a pro plaintiff crew, and I sort of see that same. There's some intuition here. They're going to be like, "What? You're fine. Just go to work. Stop complaining." Right. Um, but of course, that's really tough as an incentive, as a as a precedent. That would be super tough in this case, right? Because you can imagine the precedent that sets up for Fox for Fox the next time yeah. someone comes to them with their passion project that is pushing the pushing the profession further. All, you know, pr- pr- sort of is progressive in some particular way. And Fox says, sure, knowing that they can just swap in their own project. I guess. I mean, sure. I mean, there's two things to say about that. One, of course, is that um, as the studio system weakens and as the star system strengthens, the, the, the studios really can't do that more than once. So, you know, they, you know, who, who are the big, you know, who is the sort of the equivalent of Shirley MacLaine today, like an A-list um, um, actor, hard for me to even think because everyone's really feel like you and I are not going to be. This is going to be a terrible, this is gonna be a We're terrible gonna be version. Um... Tom Cruise, I mean, uh, yes, <laughs> it's true. We're, we're definitely taking the podcast in a bad direction because we're, we're both so let's do some pop culture. Pop culture, I mean, one. <laughs> is there like a mid 90s reference that we can bring to bear here? Jennifer Aniston, for example, friends. yeah, <laughs> um, so all right, so. Just fill in blank here, listener, for whoever you think your A-list star is. And if they, they bait and switch that person, they're not going to work with the studio again. And no one else is going to work with the studio either. And, of course, Wait, the part- I well, I mean, To be fair, that's, an, that's, that's a maybe, right? It's like, a maybe. I actually don't, we don't know that that's it's all maybe. But it's all maybes all the way down to the turtles. Oh, I mean, your oh. view that the studio system is going to want to exploit. I mean, what's in the studio's interest to do this? They, I mean, the idea is they have the person on the hook that they have to make them act. Um, you know, I think that the way that the, the system works a little bit now is it's a matching process. You know, you're trying to find the person who's right for the part. Um, I, I just would say, B, the other thing is, of course, if the 
Star has bargaining power, which which Shirley MacLaine had. They could have changed the contract now, and this is sort of a, a like an un, unanswered question in the case, which is why that footnote, yeah. which says that there's a pay or play clause, how is it not dispositive? How is it not dispositive? So the yeah. the footnote says, I mean, the the pay or play clause basically says you either are going to pay, we're either going to make you play in this part, or we're going to pay you the money we right. owe you. So just to be clear, this is a this is a footnote that's protective of Fox. Yeah. It appears to be. It appears to be written to protect Fox. Correct. Fox. What Fox promised was, we are only on the hook for one thing, and that is the and that is paying you for the film. We actually aren't on the hook for producing the film. Right. Right. But so it's pretty wild but, that that would not be. Right. right. That's not disruptive. So, you know, when I thought about this in the past, and I think probably I said something, I, I assume I talked about this when we talked about this in class, um, uh, if you're listening to this after the class discussion, is, you know, maybe there's something about whether or not that clause is enforceable. So they did write that out of the contract. Um, but you know, we're going to learn a little bit later in the semester that there's a doctrine that says that if you write down what your damages are in the contract, but you write them down in a way that doesn't match your actual damages. Um, sometimes courts are not going to enforce that. They're going to say it's a penalty clause. Um, it's an unenforceable liquidation um, or stipulation of the amount that you owe. And California courts historically were quite um, vigorous about enforcing that doctrine. They're a little bit less so now. Um, but the historically, especially in the 60s and 70s, found lots of things to be penalty clauses in which parties tried to control their losses. And on the other hand, this was a very common clause in the industry. It had never been adjudicated. And so one possibility for the reason that the court doesn't touch that, I mean, it puts it in a footnote, but doesn't really deal with it, is they know this is a common way of doing business, but they also believe it's unenforceable or it would be unenforceable if it was really pressed. The parties didn't really talk about it a ton in their briefs. And the court just said, you know what, we have this easier way to deal with this problem, which is to sort of say that the doctrine doesn't require mitigation under these circumstances, um, rather than saying that clause, which would be ordinarily unenforceable under our, under our precedence, gets McLean out of her uh, obligation now. But it is a, it's a hard one. The, are we in the Supreme Court of California here? You ask great questions. Uh, I don't, I mean, I, I guess I do have a question about whether, about whether they're, how, whether they are need to be worried about being overturned. The answer is they're in the Supreme Court of California. Okay, great, thanks. In 1970. In 1970. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I, don't, I don't know what the risks are to them of choosing one thing or the other, to, of choosing the, of choosing the sort of liquidated damages approach versus choosing the, they both seem like relatively shaky. I guess the, so I guess that you're, what you're suggesting is they're just making a call yeah. about which seems, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a better argument than that for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the other, the other sort of interesting part of the case is something that's in the Hillman excerpt that immediately follows the case, which is this idea that, although the court doesn't quite say it, and courts never really quite say it, there is something different about having to mitigate with an employer. Yes. Um, right. Who yes. just slapped you in the face. Yep. That, that like, whatever we think about this doctrine that you're supposed to not run up damages, you know, the idea that you shouldn't keep on building a bridge in the middle of the forest after they told you that, that you know, they don't yep. want it anymore, that there's something wasteful about burning money. That's all fair, but it does feel different to have to go back to work yep. to someone who said, I don't feel an obligation to you under the terms of our original agreement, and I'm going to treat you in this terrible way, and you have to take it. 
There's yeah. something like there's something uh, worrisome about the social fabric there. Like you're just creating strife. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that you, I mean, you can see this. Uh, do you teach Wassenaar? No, right? Uh, not anymore. No. The, you can, so I teach another liquidated damages case, mitigation liquidated damages case, Wassenaar, which is also an employment case. And these are both opinions that you could think of as being um, very, um, very um, se sort of sensitive to, the, to, to sort of fine grained facts. So one thing you said caught my attention, which was that they said, they say to Shirley McLean Parker that she doesn't have to mitigate, but that's not quite right. Right. It's not that they don't, she doesn't have to mitigate. I take it that one of the facts of this case is that they're supposed to start shooting like really soon. So it's not the case that she could have gone out and gotten, I mean, I think, you know, she's very famous and popular. She could get a different film. It's just too soon. It's like six weeks away. That's not how movies work. And not that I'm an expert on how movies work, but it's, it's too, it's too quick. Um, I think I, that's, that's my read. My reading of the case is that she only has, there's only one mitigation opportunity we're talking about here, right? So let's say she has a, I mean, you can imagine Fox goes back to her and says, you know, you have a duty to mitigate, go mitigate. She comes back and says, I can't, I don't have, there's no other opportunities for me right now. And they say, oh, surprise, we have this great other movie that you can, that you can do. And so there's really only one, there's really only one opportunity on the table, right? Yeah, I don't think they're saying she doesn't have a duty to mitigate. I think that the, the thing they're, that the case is, given the options that were in front of her, did yes. she have to take this? Did she have to take option? this option, right? Did she and take course, this option, right? And of course, the other thing is there are implicitly a bunch of options, right? She is famous, as we say, so she could presumably decide that she was going to go to um, a hmm, Paramount cabaret. No. Oh, oh my, yes. I was thinking cabaret. she could do like, like she could be or a. Um, What's the like place that you do comedy in New York in a cellar? This is really a problem for us. We should probably like make a rule that we're not allowed to talk about any of these pop culture problems. Great idea. Great idea. I was going to say My like Las Vegas. She could, have, she could do live perform live concerts. Yes. Yes. Right? There, she could have been hired for any people would definitely hire her for any number of things. Birthday parties. Private singing tutor. Yes. I assume that those were on the table implicitly as things yeah. ways she could have earned money. So this is a really great point, I think, because what it says is that the idea and, and so like the court doesn't say that she has to do those things. And because it's obvious that she could have had to, but they're not, yeah. they're not, they're yeah. not um, requiring that they're not making her come forward to show that she didn't. Yes. Right. Partly what this tells us is that the person who breached it's for them to show that there were options available that weren't taken that were reasonable. Yeah. She doesn't have to prove that she didn't, that, that she was unable to mitigate. They have to prove the Fox, the breacher, the bad right. person. Right. Prove that there was like an, a re ready option in front of her that was just as good that she should have taken. And the court is not willing to say that she has to take a job with them. And, and part, I think part, part of the reason why, like that the, the Hillman's insight is worth thinking about is, yeah. You know, what he says, he doesn't quite say that, but he could have said, you know, what if she went and took the, the, the big country big man? Yeah. And the whole time she's making the movie, she doesn't have the sparkle in her eye. Yeah. You know, she just, she, her, yeah. she looks, she looks, her eyes are dead. Yeah. yeah. And she's just pissed because yeah. it sucks. Yeah. You know, like there you are. 
you know, Australia, something we're going to talk about. It, yeah. It's really hot and you're in Australia and you're in a dress when you wanted to be in bloomers and you, you're not singing and your, your, your ideology, your ideological sort of goals are being, are being quashed. And they look at the film and it's a failure because, and the reviews say it doesn't look like Shirley McLean's heart was in it. Yep. You know, is it, could you imagine they would then sue her for a breach for not giving her best? Right. And I don't think a court wants to be within that dispute no. with a 10,000 foot pole. Which we sort of know, right, from there are cases in specific performance that have right. this exact quality. And I think part of what Mary Jo Frug is writing about, from, I mean, one of the critiques of these cases from a feminist perspective is there is something about the sort of control of women's labor and, and women's bodies, right? Because there, there is a bo- there's, a, there's a bodily performance here in acting and singing. And the court says, who is going, the court thinks, is there any world in which we would want to be supervising in some sort of granular way, whether or not we, whether or not there's a sort of a, a um, as you say, like a you know, full performance? And the answer is like, no, right? You don't want to touch no, it. Right. it. Sounds right. terrible. Right. Um, right. And so that's the way you can sort of feel better about the decision. Like it is a little bit procedurally odd, maybe, and like sure they seize a test from one of the many common law tests that seems the friendliest to the outcome. But underneath that sort of substrata, or underneath that strata, there's the substrata of like, what would it look like to say that she has to perform? Yeah. What what would it look like to 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 require to 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 know that she's done a good job? And does a court system want to be in the business of saying to an employee, go back and do it this time with feeling? (laughs) Do you think that the dissent, so imagine for a moment that that, um, Fox comes and says, listen, it's not just big country, big man that we offered her. It's big country, big man, or she could be the key grip on another film. We would have paid her very highly for that. Um, or she could have been um, the, she could have herself been the um, understudy in some other production. I'm not sure that's a thing, understudies in film, but okay. Probably not, that doesn't make sense. Okay, you get the idea. A lesser role. Does the dissent think that goes to the jury? Like how far are they willing to go? I mean, it's a great, question because you you have to think they don't really they couldn't possibly think that everything goes to juries um like do they think it's a like i guess i'm every, asking is every, a line, is every, right is, is, every, a line, is it a line drawing problem that they're arguing over or is it some sort of more categorical error that the dissent right. is claiming right that's a great question i mean I, um i've no i mean this is i just i just don't have intuitions about this kind of I don't have strong intuitions about the sort of procedural um, equities in some ways right here, especially because I don't, because this is the kind of case in which I might actually imagine that the, that you, that the judge is more sensitive to the particular than the jury. Yeah. What the dissent says is that the inquiry in cases such as this should not be whether differences between the jobs exist. There's always going to be differences, mm-hmm. but rather the differences are, which are present are substantial enough 
to constitute differences in kind of employment, or alternatively, whether they render substitute work employment of an inferior kind. This inquiry, in the instant case at least, involves factual determinations which are improper. So I think that that leaves open the possibility that in a different case, they say in the instant case, that's too hard to do. But in a different case, the key grip, for example, or the understudy, those would be differences that are so um, tangible, so palpable, that it wouldn't be worthwhile to send it to a jury. I guess. I guess. I, I, I mean, I, I, I would have, I mean, I think that like, it's, it's so palpable for me to see why she's getting a different job here, even though she does the same things, even though in both cases, she's a person pretending to be someone else in front of a camera for money and for the same amount of money. And presumably that, you know, the, her, her trailer is the same, the food spread is the same, you know, the, well, to be clear, Australia is not as good. Let's just, it's going to be in Australia. I've always wanted to go. It's obviously I, I different. Like I agree that it's obviously different. You've probably had many opportunities to go to Australia that you have declined. Is that, may I? Right. To be perfectly be, fair, to be perfectly clear, I hate traveling and would never want to go to Australia. Indeed. However. In part because of something that you and I share with Shirley McLean Parker. Our, little kids. Oh, yeah, little kids. Yeah, yeah that's true. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean. That's part of it. I, in, the, in the most recent years when I've taught this case, I've been like, problem solved, like case closed on one factor that maybe there's some, there's some, there's something that the, there's something about the sort of initial impressions you get about the case, the sort of uninformed impressions you get about the, about the situation that you're in. But the dissent, I think, is latching onto and saying, I want the jury to think about, to think, to like really, to follow their intuitions about this particular problem that that has to do with some lay sense of what movie stars do. And what movie stars do is they go to fancy sets, they get treated like royalty and they go all around the world to do this. So FYI, she had a daughter, Sachi Parker, who was 10 years old when this, I think, decision gets made. I'm sorry, was 10 years old when the movie was supposed to be filmed. She's 14, she's 14 by 1970. Great. I mean, that to me is dispositive. Maybe she would have liked going to Australia. She goes to school. I mean, it's a fair point. It's also, Australian film sets are hot. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Who even knows what's going on down there? However, I think there's lots of reasons to see the case as a not really not neither the majority nor the dissent really say what they're up to in ways that are satisfactory which is the thing that's funny about the case okay but can i just yeah if pen fired me and then said or mitigating we found you a job in melbourne yeah it's that's not a case that has to go to the jury no way, no way with an employment case for exactly the reasons that Bob Hillman suggests. The only thing I'd say about that is six weeks on a film set is different from the rest of your life in Melbourne. Okay, that's fair. 
I'm still a no, but I no, I understand. I mean, it, it it is a little bit different. I agree that like, I mean, this is something that I was they were the federal government was sort of saying they're going to start pushing federal employees out of DC by saying, you know what, you can take a job in Topeka, and you know, I think that the the cruelty of that was sort of like go ahead, uproot your life and you yeah. have to choose right now. No, I see. And, and that's a fair deal. Yes. And, and I think that's not fair. However, saying you're on, you're seconded, it's like being at a law firm and you're going to be seconded to a different city for six weeks or for eight weeks. And you know, you're getting $10 million. Isn't, is that so different that no reasonable jury could conclude? And I think part of it is we just don't want juries to have that choice because we are concerned that they're going to make the wrong choice or because of your sort of sort of dynamic um, argument that it's going to encourage the, the studios who most of the time are not going to be dealing with a star, but rather are going to be dealing to some sort of up and coming, you know, right. um, young actor. Uh, 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 they're, they're, the studios are going to sort of behave opportunistically. Yes. They won't behave opportunistically as Shirley MacLaine Parker because she's got the power. But, you know, whoever the sort of up-and-coming stars were in 1970, that should be more your wheelhouse. Um, uh, whoever the up-and-coming stars were then, they're going to get hurt. I'm not sure why that would be my wheelhouse, but okay. Well, because it's older, obviously. <laughs> Up, okay. <laughs> what else are we forgetting about this case? I mean, I think students often leave the case wondering what the dumb rule is. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that I, I've had this like a many times. They, they, people leave the case, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a very interesting discussion. But actually, if what we had on the exam, what is yeah. the yeah. rule that yeah. you're supposed to get from this case? Right. And yeah. So why don't you give a shot for that? Well, I, the, the, I have to say, the answer I normally give is that you don't need to know the rule of this case. Oh. What I actually say is this is a court interpreting the principle of of avoidability or mitigation in the context of employment. Like this is a California court saying for in California employment cases, the rule is different or inferior. Right. But, and that's, but that's a, but that's an, that is a, an application of the traditional common law duty to mitigate to a particular context. I think I say something very similar, which is the case illustrates um, that the um, the content of the duty to mitigate is going to turn a lot on the sort of the per particular factual details, and those particular factual details might be about the people in the case or the nature of the contract. So, in employment cases, there's here's some you know McLean's an example of how employment cases make it harder to want mitigation. Yeah. Um, and the closer the thing is to looking like an employment relationship, yep. the, the less you're going to want to see mitigation because it does have this icky part of yes. owning the body of, of sort of, I've, I, I, I've contracted for your yes. whole spirit and labor and I get it. And yes. there's something icky about that, you know, yes. obviously. And it appears to give the breaching party another bite at the apple for terms that they have already given up yeah. right so like presume so i, I assume bloomer girl was never going to be filmed in australia right but let's imagine yeah, it wasn't yeah. no that would make no sense or I, what am i saying i don't know what people do filming but the there's already been a negotiation right in which all of these you know d dance director approval 
are, are signed off on screenplay approval. And it looks like what the, what the mitigation could possibly do is give the breaching party another shot at clawing back the stuff that they've already had to give up. Yeah. That's really, but that feels really bad. Yeah. Right? Like that feels like, I mean, you can imagine, I'm trying to think if we can, I'm trying to think if we can sort of set up a slightly more sympathetic case where, where the duty to mitigate involves doing something. So, so one of the easy cases for, for, for mitigation, one of the easy sort of um, set of hypos for mitigation has to, do when, has to do with cases in which mitigation means you have to stop doing something. Right. I told you to stop building that bridge. Don't keep building the bridge. Right. Right. Don't run, don't run up damages. Right. Don't run up damages. Right. Don't run, don't run up the tab. Um, but, but you can imagine a case in which someone has been contracted to do some construction project. The, um, the developer decides that they're not going to go forward with the construction project. The contractor, the construction firm is offered another job doing other construction and they say, but we don't like this one. We, we wanted to do was be building a um, high, high status building as opposed to a low status. Yeah, building. exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and that's a tougher question. It's I tougher. take it. It should be tougher. Right? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, part of the thing that's hard about it and, and I think it's just, there, there's a reason why this kind of case ends up gets tested, not the case doesn't get tested, but sort of the ideas get tested because it does really force you to be really sharp about your intuitions the, yeah. why, you know, why is it tougher? You wouldn't want the answer to be because construction work doesn't have artistry in it. Or, you know, it is the idea that only, you know, professionals get to insist upon the job of their choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Professor Tess Wilkinson Ryan says Melbourne law is no good for her, is not good enough for her. Yeah. While as someone could be shipped across the world to build a building in Melbourne law. Well, yeah. of course they could because yeah. a building is a building anywhere. You yeah. wouldn't want the intuition to be that. Yeah. And so you have to sort of really think about like, what is it that you find offensive about what they've asked you to do? Is it the opportunism that the, the sense position would give to the, the, the 20th century Fox? Is yeah. it the, you know, the worry about social sort of unrest or like you're creating friction by requiring the performance? Is it the inability to know whether you're doing a good job or not? And, you know, I think there's lots of the, 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 the reason why we pick the case to talk about is because students do have this problem because they leave the case and they say like, you know, it's just a morass. Yeah. I, don't, I don't leave the case knowing what the answer is. And I think yeah. that hopefully what you heard in the discussion is we don't know the answer either. We think it's really interesting to sort of brood around or think about, but really the, the case is sort of about, you know, under what circumstances does the non-breaching party have an obligation to reduce the total cost to the breacher. Cost yeah. to the breacher. Yeah. And that, the answer to that is turns a lot on how bad you think the breaching conduct is and what are the alternatives that are available and what do they look like? And on top of that, you have this level of who decides the sort of the judge jury question. And on top of that, you have the question of how much incentives you want to give to breaching parties and who do you think breaching parties are going to be? And so it all ends up being super indeterminate. Um, and, 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 and I think pretty interesting. Yep. yep. No, that's right. And this case has, <clears throat> excuse me. So this case is, it, it present, it has so many good things about it for discussion, but it also is, it's, un, but it's unusual. Most mitigation cases are not going to be mitigation cases in which the mitigation is being offered as a different contract with the same breacher, right? That's not usually what mitigation is. Usually mitigation is you go out and find a different job, right? right. 
similarly, the fact that this is employment is makes right means that right. we're in a, we're in a slightly um, we're in a slightly different environment than the normal sort of common law contract. I'll say one more thing, which is that I've taught this case um, so, so since two thousand four through two job market up cycles and two job market down cycles, oh. and one really interesting thing I've noticed is that people's intuitions about the case turn sometimes a little bit on macroeconomic factors. So when, you know, the economy is in a tailspin, people say like, oh my God, take the job. You should take the job. You should have to take the job. Who are you to be pro so precious about the job? But when the economy is doing well, people say, oh my God, don't offer this terrible other job. You shouldn't have to take a terrible other job. You should be able to stand on your principles and not take that job. And, and so there is something that's worth thinking about, about how sort of macro factors in the economy in ways that are really hard to sort of parse, make their way into the cases that we have. I, I will be curious to see how this case ages um, in, the, uh, in, the cur in the modern era. Yep. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's coming to the end of its, I think, not quite yet, but almost soon. Coming to the end of being controversial. That's yeah, right. A, Coming to the end of being controversial. There is yep. something about the firm promising her money and refusing to pay and saying, no, yep. you have to do what we say. Yep. You have to not, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. Yep. That's, yep. All right. Great. Awesome. Bye, everybody. <laughs>